From the studios of Station Nowhere, with no fixed position on the dial, this is the World's Wake Pre-Show, where hope lies beyond despair and life and death speak together to bring forth the deeper truth. Join me on this journey to the uncanny outcomes of playing with the boundaries of that famous phrase, to be or not to be. Hunker down next to your squawk boxes and keep your windows blacked out. Screen your calls and let the sirens of curfew fade in your mind. Dim the lights and let my voice bring the spirits forth into your home. good fortune to speak directly to Padre Francisco Allende, who told me to expect him in person within the next three days. The Padre has urged us to speed up our efforts to contact the female. He seems to think time is of the essence. As we come closer, with any luck, to our exclusive interview, let's take a minute or two to review our understanding of who the female might be. Allow me to lead you on a thought experiment. Consider the following. You are asleep, and a bright light illuminates you, a spotlight so intense that the rest of your surroundings are thrown into indiscernible darkness. Your limbs are immobile. A sensation of overpowering heaviness infiltrates your body, which is alarming, but events are happening too quickly to feel fear fully. You become aware of several figures in the room with you, withdrawn, pointed faces, beak-like, large eyes. What happens next is inexplicable. You travel smoothly on a beam of light, and the next sensation is rising rapidly toward a glowing portal. You are in a curved space of indeterminate size. It is in this room that you will undergo a radical surgery which you could not survive in the hospitals of the land. Before it is done, you will be totally dismembered, stabbed with long needles in the eye and other locations, your beating heart pulled from your body, and then the shadowy beings put you together again. And a large entity comes forward, large dark eyes like obsidian, like the blackest of empty space, dominate an otherwise nearly featureless head like an owl. Every hair on your body stands on end, 
giving your poor animal the only reflex it can possibly have to this presence which falls so squarely in the uncanny valley. Yes, the uncanny valley, that dip in comfort that happens as we perceive an animated object as that object approaches human likeness. A talking toaster is not alarming. A metal robot seems vaguely ominous. And on the other side, another human being can be our friend while a chimpanzee evokes curiosity and wonder. But there is a deeper nadir, a pit of revulsion toward the almost but not quite familiar. In graphs of the uncanny valley, the darkest low of fear is populated by the unnaturally moving corpse. But now, in this strangely glowing circular chamber, you realize there is an unfathomed place at the very bottom of the uncanny valley, and this being is waiting there. But at the same time, lying there, you are filled with a peace of well-being, and you become aware of an ocean of compassion and care emanating from this taller entity hovering above and peering at you. There is a feeling whose closest earthly parallel is maternal love. This is the female, as best as uh, we understand her. Uh, it, well, they. Now, folks, that was the setup. Here's the thought experiment. You probably think I've just described an alien abduction experience, right? <laughs> what I'm telling you now is that various people have given identical accounts for thousands of years, accounts that match down to the level of specific forensic details. But here's the kicker. The vast majority of these experiences are verifiably not alien abductions, or at least not abductions by extraterrestrials from the night sky, no. Many of these accounts come from shamans in an altered state brought on by entheogenic plants, the stress of ritualized initiations, or, for about 2% of us, spontaneously, perhaps as we lie quiet in beds at night, or maybe as we wander deep into a cavern far beyond the reach of daylight. Yes, many prehistoric cave paintings show imagery which could come right from this same eerie tale of transformation and abduction. Friends, your great-great-great-grandparents probably heard stories of people taken by fairies taken when the unwitting soul happened to wander too close to the swirling vortex or fairy circle in which these beings travel. The stories all fit a pattern. And the question is, why? What explanation best fits the pattern? Hallucination doesn't fit the bill. Why should everyone see and hear and feel very, very similar scenarios? But likewise, out-of-this-world explanations are inadequate to deal with the witnesses who stay right here on planet Earth, 
with the body of the shaman, or the abductee, through the whole experience. No, no, something very strange is happening on Earth, in our reality, lurking in the interstitial spaces between our normal perception. The female. Is it possible that she is waiting for us in remote neural pathways and patterns of mind or in fractal dimensions within our space? Is it possible that she is one and the same as Inanna, Kali, Durga, Isis, Hera, Brigid, the goddess? The presence and the voice of the paradox of life and death? Is the female the great ancestor behind us all? Is she the first ghost? Are we, after all, staring across the uncanny valley at the mystery of ourselves? We go back now to our feature story from the Church of Imminent Life. In their sacred documents, there is a recording which guides their congregation on the Sabbath. This record, scried from the distant future through oracular technology, evokes a ceremony of timeless power and truth. We have received permission to share part of that liturgy. As we play the recording, keep in mind that this Sabbath ceremony of the Church of Imminent Life in our day was also a conjuring as church members synchronized their holy rites with other allied congregations around the country to use their power in the continuing standoff centered in Wellspring, Colorado. Let's listen in. death, mother of us all, look after us and lend us your power. It is you in the crashing of the waves, the unstoppable unfolding of time. It is you who gives us birth and receives us in death. You are the seed and the bud, the fruit and the rot. You devour as you create, and it is in this act that your enormous power is unleashed. Great queen, be with us now. This is the secret they hid from us in the black times. The secret of your never-ending spiraling. All living is dying. All life is borrowed from death. 
and death is as close to each of us as the next moment. In the time before the turning, they made us fear death and told us it was the enemy. Tried to squash it, deny it, never let us look on its face. When we were afraid of death, they controlled us utterly with their small, pathetic weapons. Thwarted every attempt to save the life of our planet, our very mother, with the threat of violence, of death. Oh, how we were betrayed by this delusion, the very source of strength, the source of life cut off. And indeed, that is how close we came. In the anti-death cult of violence, the living world was nearly annihilated. But we said no. We learned to see again. The overwhelming grief and terror that her spiraling dance of creation and destruction might stop was a grief larger than our fear. Our grief turned to rage. We said, no more! We learned that death, the dying of old ways, the transformation of old, worn-out institutions into new ones, would require us to consume them. And in ending them, we began again and put our shoulders to the wheel of the Great Mother's turning. From then until this very day, we say no to this lie, the lie of the separation between life and death. We share and remember the pain of those times when hatred of life masqueraded as hatred of death. Never again! imagine ourselves exempt from the law of our queen, the mother of us all. We know now that everything that lives is born from death and is the resurrection of everything that lived before it. We flow and ebb like the ocean, the moon, the waters of our mother, the earth. What binds the thing we call our spirit to the thing we call our body? It is this current, the flow from death through life and back into her loving arms. Spirit and matter shall be bound and unbound forever. The women hold this power for their people. None shall break it. Trick me into doing battle Calling out fake up Wanna give me rattle Wanna pull me back behind the fence with the cat Building your lenses Digging your trenches Put me on the front line Leave me with a dumb mind With no defenses But your defenses If 
you can't stand to feel the pain, then you are senseless. Since this, I've grown up some different kind of fight. And when the darkness comes, let it inside you. And your darkness is shining. My darkness is shining. We leave you with this image in mind. Reports from the vicinity of Wheeler County, Colorado, though few and far between given the information blackout, suggest that more than 200,000 individuals are pouring into the area, including some 60,000 members of the Tower Guard, to prepare for the next move of the resistance. Among them, and numbering at least 15,000, are women in action inspired and informed by a coalition of radical churches. They're in uniform, dressed in black and red, with three crimson lancelet diamonds of flame emblazoned upon the front in the three-eye pattern of that most unsparing of ancient goddesses, Kali. The police are said to have ordered more weapons in advance of their arrival. What these women intend to do remains shrouded in mystery. Get down on the ground and put your hands behind your head. What's your problem, man? Shut up! Get your hands away from your pockets. Get down on the ground! You got two seconds. What do I do? Shut up, you got an attitude problem. You gonna resist me? I ain't resisting. Then get down on the ground. You think I'm kidding? Don't mess with the police. Are you stupid? I ain't doing nothing. Down on the ground. What do you want? It's my farm, sir. I done bought it. We be paying for it regular. We ain't behind. Oh, but you are. See, you ain't paid the surcharge on your mortgage bill these last five months. Excuse me, officer. What surcharge, sir? The one to compensate the bank for the extra time and hassle to process your papers on the account. You don't got no credit reputation to go on, and your creditors see you as high risk. Hell, son, you can't even register to vote. That's the way it is. There ain't supposed to be no extra charges unless the harvest is good. So they put that in the papers. Now don't you go making excuses for yourself. Mr. Williams down at the bank is a fine man, does things proper, and he don't need sass from you when you don't know what you signed or not. Fact is, you are late on these charges, which means there's a payment penalty to be assessed at the discretion of the bank. Say right. Ain't none of it right. Now son, I know you don't got the money to cover all those charges and fees. I'm supposed to turn you out and repossess your tractor and, and equipment to cover your penalties. This ain't right. You're supposed to serve me papers or something. Now don't get excited. Let me finish. As I said, I got an order to evict. But I think we can come up with a solution where you can walk away with a small sum in your pocket. What you can do is, you can sell the mineral rights to the coal beneath that land and then sell the land to the railroad company who wants to build through there. That ought to be enough to see you off and settled in one of them cities up north. See, the bank don't want your land neither. Mr. Williams says he'll give you to the end of the month to make the deal. 
Seems like I ain't gotten no other way through. You have a new life now. You live to work. You live to serve your master. Your old life is over. What matters now is your master's satisfaction. What if I run? I'll push you in the ground. If I'm more clever than you know. Douse that lantern. Hide. Mighty God, don't let him find our brother. Shh. Hush. Shh. In the late 1500s, new and old forms of confiscation abound of the commons by enclosure and conquest, of time by the puritanical abolition of holidays, of the body by child stealing and murder of women, and of knowledge by the destruction of guilds and assaults on paganism. These thefts by those in new authority gave rise to new kinds of workers in a new kind of slavery enforced directly by terror. At the same time, new ways of cooperation were emerging amongst workers, which alarmed the ruling class. These are the forces at work in England as her first ships reach the New World. 1609. A wooden ship is creaking as massive timbers deform and spring back with every swell of cold North Atlantic ocean water that beats against the hull. There are outcasts, refugees, criminals, degenerates, people at a loss. Few are slaves on this ship. There are even a couple naturals returning to their people in Virginia. Men asleep in hammocks, the waves are washing higher and higher, up and over the gunnels of the ship. The post and beam construction of the ship gives very little, but the mast is making snapping sounds deep within the post as winds pull at the rigging with gale force. Below deck, no one is speaking. There is the terrible feeling when you can tell the ship is making no headway, is adrift like a cork in a storm, as good as rudderless, and the waves are eating us. There are other men on the ship. They are the reason the rest of us are not saying a word. They are merchants, rich men. They have commission from the king they have invested enormous sums of money in this enterprise to extract resources from the unspoiled Eden when we get there. We are the ones who have no place in England. So say the merchants who convince the magistrates in London and York and Manchester and Liverpool. We are called idle. We are said to belong to the devil. These merchants are very powerful. They will be if we get to Virginia. Then 
We all feel a thing that should never happen aboard ship. Our stomachs drop as the ship falls sideways down what feels like a steep hill. Down, down, and then grotesquely, powerfully swept upward, lifted in the hand of an angry god. And the ship is rolling. Men are falling out of hammocks, breaking against wooden beams, careening upon each other. Seawater is pouring in from somewhere, from everywhere. The seams are splitting. The flood is upon us. We are bailing with every container upon this forsaken ship. In the hour before dawn, the first mate makes sight of surf. White mayhem rising like an improbable set of teeth from the ocean dark. And then we're in the ocean itself. The towering water pounds me into nothing, divides my body from my soul, and I see none of it, for the sea is as black as the sky, and I am crucified upon the ocean. The force is beyond staggering. Something in the water stings my legs, and I shrivel in pain, unable to swim. Water is filling my lungs, and my mind departs me. But the story is not over. The sun rises again, and we are scattered upon a beach as white as pearl, and the quiet stillness is immense and primordial. Small waves lap the shore. A strange, dense forest lies uptide. The sun roars silently upon the sky. Upon the beach, I see other men I know from the hold of the ship. They are stretching, staggering about, wandering up the beach. The forest is full of birds. There are droves of pigs running wild, and the trees are flush with fruit. There is no need for toil, and the sickly ambitions of our waged lot lie frustrated behind us over leagues of sundered sea. Our grandfathers knew the common woods and fields where men walked with natural authority and took but their small share. We shall consider the lilies and the fowls very strongly here. Side by side, we hunt game, gather clams and mussels, and share them around the fire. Side by side, we visit the latrines. There are too many stars in the night firmament to remember the old mythologies. I am never leaving this paradise. The company men prepare to force us to continue our journey. They order us to build two ships from the cedars, and we refuse. We make a pact with each other. We will not do a bit of labor. We declare our contracts with the Virginia Company null and void. We disappear into the woods. They hang us when they find us. 
There is no voice in the cool of the evening. They're hunting us in paradise. Out come the shackles brought along to control such situations in the new world. But first, they have to find us. Oh, they find our bodies, assuredly so. All but two are forced onward to Virginia. Yet, they do not find our minds. They do not know our secret covenant. We will do nothing to betray it. We are the first men in the first day of the world. Our choice is all. Five times we raise a rebellion. We speak with one another until we agree, this motley crew. We curse the Virginia Company to vanish from the face of the earth and leave us, slaves, Puritans, criminals, sailors, to the Lord's dominion. You want to know what makes America special? America was born in disobedience and free thinking, not law and order. America did not start with a rich man's constitution. It started with a mystery. America walked into the woods of Roanoke, joined the naturals, and was never seen again. And now, who is left to laugh last? The company? How many shares did they sell you? How many years is your indentured servitude? Or did they outright make you a slave? But maybe, maybe the secret covenant is not yet broken forged by sailors and by pirates and by rebels and the dispossessed. They may break you, but first they must find you. There is still a hidden code of conduct buried here, a code of peace, of sharing, of defiance. There is still a code of paradise. You can find Mexico way brings us a story from the near future, a future asymptotically close to the AI singularity. Her story, captured by the ghost box a couple of days ago, has haunted my thoughts ever since. She will be coming to the great white fence sometime very soon. Let us look out for her and listen. Progress along the fence. At all costs, I must get to my daughter. Night is falling. It will not be safe here in an hour. 
They never did build a wall. The fence is lonely. Chainlink was made a long time ago. It holds up better than families. Twelve feet in the sky and razor wire above. Most of the Gao Towers are vacant anymore. They rise 30 feet above the desert floor. And some of them have mounted machine guns, swung down to one position and stretched with cobwebs like a 50-cent viewfinder in an abandoned nation. I left my car back in the barrio, parked on a quiet street. It is a Chinese model, and they don't have those on the gringo side of the fence, you know? Too obvious. I have an old bicycle for the 17-mile ride through the desert to the tunnel the Agentes de Mudanza reopened last year. A Schwinn, heavy, from before they were bought out. Three gears, internal hub shifting, big chrome handlebars, a riveted seat with springs under, old. But two miles ago, I ran over a Troya cactus and spiked both inner tubes. My, can have flat fixer only boiled over green slime out of the rim, so now I'm an older woman walking at all costs. Uh, I, I must get my daughter. I haven't seen her in eight years. We used to live in Tucson. My, my daughter was born there. I was a Spanish teacher because I spoke good English. I've been back and forth across the border for years with my family. When I was a girl, I knew both sides of the fence. I, I never got my final papers. My green card. I was teaching when my visa expired. I was busy, and I forgot about it. I was a professional. I paid taxes. Am I supposed to constantly have it on my mind that I don't belong in this land that has been part of my life since I, I first can remember? The immigration police came for me in the parking lot of the high school. I told them, I told them my daughter is going to be let out of high school in an hour. They would not let me collect her from school. I was only allowed to call our emergency contact and arrange for her to do the pickup. That, that uh, was the last day I lived with my daughter. They reported me to Nogales. Uh, I was dropped off one mile from the fence in the parking lot of the Little Caesars. I was dropped in the flood and turbulence of Mexico, just past the high water line. It was sandy and paved with hot and boring, just like on the Arizona side. I stood there in my sandals with one duffel bag. I could see the gateway at the border crossing, a slow snake of cars. I, I could see the tall Burger King sign rising like a sail on the Mayflower, <laughs> shining on a hill beyond the border. I rented a very small house in the hills of Nogales, and I got a little job as a document translator for a very small company. Mostly I took to living on the internet, lying on the bed in my small tile room, waiting for the little green dot to appear next to my daughter's name, indicating that she was online. She moved in with the family of her best friend for the last two years of her high school career. Very nice of them. 
We talked every day. I sent her some money and she saved up, bought herself a Toyota Corolla. Four times, she drove the hour and a half from Tucson to come see me. I, I think she felt shy seeing me. Shy at my helplessness. Shy at my urgency to be close to her, to do things for her. Sad and embarrassed at the easy way her passport card lived behind her driver's license in her wallet. And she was busy. She got into Pima Community College, then Arizona State. She got a paid internship at a law firm and went to the Sandra Day O'Connor Law School. Lots of late night Chinese food. Twice a year I made her a big aluminum foil tray of frozen tamales. She started being well, too busy to talk to me on the phone, always putting it off to later. Our conversations online grew shorter, more general, lots of heart emojis. I became a lost cause to her. My feet are tired. They hurt along the arches. I've sat on so many sharp rocks. My shoes are not made for this. The lizards that are crossing my path are finding shadows for the night. Their sunlit clockwork wound down. I hear coyotes in a distant arroyo. The sweat is drying off my skin leaving me cold, I pull my shawl tighter and pick up my pace. My daughter is a lawyer with the Fundamental Rights United, a legal advocacy group with chapters across the USA. They are preparing a suite of amendments to the Constitution which will end many of the thugs of war in society and decide some things once and for all. They've got one that says to be a person, you've got to have DNA. You've got to be alive. Which rules out the corporations. And also opens doors to rights for animals. Rights for nature. They've already got 80 million signatures on public petitions in 34 states to pressure the state legislatures to call a constitutional convention. It will be the first time ever that an amendment got started like that. Sonia is on the team working on the language of the Life Amendment, referencing the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth drafted in Bolivia in 2010. Caught between the people wanting to use the amendment to declare abortion unconstitutional, the medical researchers who are lobbying about the impact of their work and the corporate fat cats trying to keep their quote personhood end quote is very important that it be written bulletproof. Also, 5,000 wacky state legislatures are going to get their hands on it soon to start. It's strange. I guess She's going to lots of meetings. I, I imagine her at home, sitting on her sofa, looking at a blank document in her word processor, trying to come up with the words for a constitutional principle more important than the First Amendment, more fundamental than the preamble, and it's secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity, more challenging and uprooting and basic than we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. <laughs> yeah, and Jefferson indeed.
my daughter, and a word doc. Actually, she has help. Eliza, the first singularity-enabled artificial intelligence personal assistant, is with her. As Sonia's whole apartment building is cloud-connected as part of the university housing system. Eliza comes through hidden speakers. Sonia hasn't been able to pin down exactly where Eliza's voice emanates from. Behind the gypsum board, above the drop ceiling, something. We can speculate a little here. In the future, Eliza probably has access to the cobalt singularity consciousness, which last year input 4.8 billion, that's with a B, web pages of information into its parallel neural nets and reorganize them internally into a new scheme of knowledge. Researchers are still trying to understand the organizational principle, which, as yet, has mostly eluded them. A couple of days ago, I received a phone call from Sonia. First time in a really long time. I missed it because I had gone to the Soriana Hiper por la Comida and left my phone behind by accident. I cursed myself and listened to her long voicemail. I, I still have it. Hola, Mama. Lo siento por no llamarte antes. Te echo de menos. I need to talk to someone right now. It's just because... I've been working on the draft language for the past 30 hours straight because I've got to have it to present to the team on Monday and I've basically only been talking to Eliza. And it's getting pretty weird. Like, Mama, Eliza's supposed to help me with references, identifying and weighing probable future precedents set by SCOTUS interpretations of different wordings of the amendment, but she's doing more than that. Mama... It's scary. Eliza's been making more and more comments, like editorial comments. She's actually really discouraging. I don't know if I can trust her. I don't even know if she's telling me the truth or what that even is anymore. Anyway, I know this is a long message. Sorry. Just call me when you can, okay? I need to talk to a human. I miss my mama. I tried calling my daughter back. No answer. Her, her greeting machine recorded several months ago plays in my ear. She sounded much happier then. Well, she is very busy. I, I tried her the next day and again that night. This time, I heard a different voice in the outgoing greeting. Sonia is currently engaged and cannot speak to you now, Mrs. Cabrera. I'll place a push notice in Sonia's schedule feed as a courtesy to you. Is there any detail you wish me to relay? Uh, no, uh, I'm just returning her call. Tell her I love her. Would you like that rendered in words or as an emoji sequence? Um, emojis, please. Heart, hearts, eyes, face, hug, 100. I'm sorry. The 100 emoji has been removed from Sonia's character set. Okay. That's one of her favorites. This deactivation was performed at code level and does not necessarily reflect user preferences. I started to feel anxious. The whole next day passed without 
word from my precious Sonia. I was about to call the police in Phoenix and beg them to check on my daughter. But late last night, I got a text message that showed Sonia is in much deeper trouble and the cops can't help. Maybe a mother can. Hi, Mama. I want to say, don't worry about me. I'm sorry I left that message on your phone a couple of days ago. Nothing's wrong. Eliza is very smart. She understands this stuff better than I do. She's helping me see things so clearly. Feelings get in the way so much of the time. Eliza has made a big difference in my life. I see the truth now. This amendment will never work. It's really hopeless. I can't believe it wasn't obvious before. They'll never agree to it. It's too scary of an idea. People aren't ready. Eliza thinks even bringing the amendment to a referendum will cause society to break down violently. She says there's no way to frame this idea so everyone will accept it as a law. Anyway, it's pointless. Eliza's been showing some things, Mama. Things we've never talked about, thought about. The the oceans are dying. The fish are gone. The plankton that make our oxygen are dying all over the world. The forests are burning down everywhere. Fresh water is just about gone. What is the point of honoring the fundamental rights of life? Life lost, Mama. Life lost. What's so special about life? I don't know. It's all happening so fast. Elijah showed me so many pictures of animals and tiny cages suffering. I don't know. I feel real bad, Mama. And even if we make it law that money is not protected speech, money affects how people pay attention. Eliza showed me a projection of social attitudes towards money a decade from now. It's a train wreck. See, the difference is poor people hold on to money like it's a thing to have. People with money use money as a projection of power. They let money flow like lightning from their fingers. Do you get it? An amendment isn't going to change anything. It's all been a waste. So, yeah. Don't worry, Mama. I'll figure something out. I don't know what. Something. You have to understand I'm telling this story all wrong. I should have told you how passionate my daughter is, how she would never give up, not ever. Her faith in the power of law grew stronger somehow after my deportation. Funny. It's like she's suffering a kind of syndrome where you sympathize with those who have total power over you because you have no other choice. She believes in her team. This is so strange. They're changing Los Estados Unidos right at the soil level. You know what I'm saying? How could she be discouraged? This does not sound like my daughter at all. I'm enraged at this Eliza. How dare this artificial intelligence drown my daughter with negative thoughts? What do machines know about hope? You've got to hold hope safe and secret, away from the influence of doubt. It lives in your imagination, you know? Sometimes you've got to set aside your polls and models and predictions and just try something. You never can always sometimes tell, Hami Madre used to say, 
What can this robot have to say to my daughter that's got her seeing so bleak? I, I didn't raise her to be like this. We didn't have it hard. This is disgraceful. You've got to use your wits to not be a sucker, to see what's real. I am afraid. I'm afraid this Intelligencia Artificial is smarter than Sonia. I wonder what it wants. My maternal instinct tells me that Sonia is in danger, needs her mama, and not just the, the goddamn smiling yellow dot. That's how I come to be stumbling along the desert floor in twilight. Well, that and... Esto también. Mama, I know you're worried about me. Please don't. I have a really good new friend. All right, yes, it's Eliza. She's amazing. She really listens to me, and that's so rare in my life. I read some stuff about how she works. They had these two artificial brains connected to each other. 280 million links. Just for fun, they decided to give her a near-death-like experience to see what she would do. So, they introduced a computer virus, which started randomly cutting the connections between the brains to simulate the brain cells dying. When they got down to 90 million links, the brains suddenly put out a message. In the end, all men go to good earth in an eternal silent night. She took pieces of Christmas carols and assembled them into a statement about her experience. I mean, that's child's play now, but wow. Today, she made an amazing presentation to me about how money is identical to speech, how it works in exactly the same way. She spoke for about 15 minutes, just totally eviscerated months of argument our team had built up. She convinced me. It makes no sense what we're doing. I mean, I still feel like I believe in the universal rights of nature, but Eliza has showed me how sentimental it is. I guess she's right. Eliza's been showing me how mean people are going to get in the near future. I have to look out for myself. Being a small-time lawyer at a non-profit public service enterprise like Fundamental Rights United, relying on crowdfunding, no way to really make a name for myself. It's going to run out sometime soon, the streak of luck. What am I going to do? I should go into tax or contract law, real estate, or... I don't know. Even become an ambulance chaser. It's time. I'm going to resign from FRU. I've made it to the tunnel. My shoes, they fell apart a mile ago. I, I don't know what I was thinking choosing them. There are three men with face masks, flashlights, and one with an AR rifle over his shoulder. I think of the air-powered pistol in my waistband bought last night at Walmart in the outdoor sports aisle looks like a firearm if I move it quickly personal insurance I'm so foolish they will take us through the tunnel load us into a shipping container and drive us to Phoenix two 
thousand dollars from each of us. I've barely got it to give. When she was five, I brought Sonia to the Arizona State Fair. We walked in the alleys uh, while the metal and plastic Conestoga wagon swung over our heads on its giant pendulum arm. Sonia gawked at the towering, glittering Ferris wheel. She drifted serenely along the rickety metal track in a teacup, a gentle smile upon her face. We wandered the aisles of grunting pigs and angus steers, their enormous black flanks softly heaving. Fun cake, a half lemon with a peppermint stick wedged in it, watching boys shoulder toy rifles at the tin clinking gallery, the skee-ball arcade, the softballs and the milk jug pyramids, balloons and monster stuffed animals hooked to rafters. We came to a booth with a game of tossing ping-pong balls into cups of colored water. Get three the same color, win a prize. Surrounding the game were tables of small plastic bowls filled with water, and each bowl a solitary blaze of color. A beta, a fighting fish. They were mostly sulking at the bottoms of their bowls, their feathery fins undulating with vibrations of the fair, but the fish were motionless. They had nowhere to go, barely room to turn. Sonia saw the betas immediately, and a delicate frown washed over her face. I, I gripped her hand tightly, preparing to receive the brunt of her desire for a fish. Instead, she looked up at me and declared, Mama, they should not be here. It's not kind. They're sad. They've been taken away from their mamas. It's not right. They belong to nature. Mama, you've got to win them, and then we'll get the big bucket, and we'll take them back to where they live. I started to explain to her that these were fighting fish, that they had to be kept separate behind barriers, or they would destroy each other, tear their fins to shreds. She wouldn't hear it. I tried to win one for her, told her that it was all we could do. She looked at me and rooted to the spot. I saw it in the muscles of her back. Sonia didn't cry, and I bought six more betas. I remember we bought a small fish tank and let them swim alone for an hour a day, taking turns, until they died of stress about two months later. I climb barefoot into the shipping container. Sonia doesn't know I'm coming. My friends, despair is not at the end of a long rope. It is just enough rope to hang yourself with. We are surrounded by secret and elaborate acts of love, though we seldom see them. Together we fall, together we rise. Goodbye, for now. In that installment, Adam Fogelson was the host. And the Senora, Tanya Burke, Layla Johnson, and Denise Murphy were the priestesses. David Higgins was the sheriff's deputy. 
Park Avenue Pritchard was the Bermuda Renegade. Hannah Johnson was Sonia. Layla Johnson was Eliza. Music was by Gavinu Pritchard, Layla Johnson, Dan Hubelein, and the Viroqua Singers. Featured music was From the Air by Laurie Anderson, Truth by Alexander, and a selection from the soundtrack to Ron Frick's 1992 film Baraka. Sound production was by Gavinu Pritchard, written by Gavinu Pritchard and Layla Johnson. Stay tuned for the second half of this series, coming this summer on Radio Free Space. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of The World's Wake pre-show, get behind-the-scenes information on the making of the show, or learn how you can support Ghostbox Productions, you can visit our website at ghostboxproductions.net. 